The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. I find this scientifically fascinating. You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. Hello, computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the Great Robot Wars. Anteater Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in free. Two, one. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to UCI Conversations, a weekly public affairs program dedicated to exploring everything in the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and last but not least, Zot, 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 everyday anteaters. The following interview was originally broadcast in March of 2018. Enjoy this encore presentation. This is Kevin Bossenmeyer with UCI Conversations, and my guest today is award-winning journalist Richard Harris. He joined NPR as a young lad in 1986 and has reported on a wide range of topics in science, medicine, and the environment. In early 2014, he shifted his focus to biomedical research that resulted in his recent book. It's called Rigor Mortis, How Sloppy Science Creates Worthless Cures, Crushes Hope, and Wastes Billions. On Wednesday, March 7, 2018, he spoke at UCI's Beckman Center about this topic. Welcome, Richard. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Fantastic. Well, please tell us how you initially got interested in this topic. In this topic, well, when I was asked to go back and do biomedical research again for NPR, I hadn't done that for many years, for more than a decade. So I thought, well, the first thing I'm going to do is take a look at what's been happening in the field while I was gone. And being a journalist, one thing I decided to do was follow the money. And I discovered that the NIH budget, which is the lion's share of federal research dollars for biomedical research, had doubled between 1998 and 2003. So happy days were here again for biomedical researchers. However, starting in 2003, Congress said, we've solve that problem, we're done giving more money to the NIH. And so they flatlined the budget, but of course expenses kept going up. So in real dollar terms, less and less money was flowing to biomedical research. So here's this huge addition of new money. People were all over the place building labs, hiring people and so on. And then all of a sudden it's like, ah, and by the way, we're cutting off your future funding. And so I thought this has got to be a problem. And I don't know exactly what that means, but it's a formula for disaster or certainly for trouble. And I was also aware in reading around a little bit about some problems that scientists were having reproducing the works of others. Science is supposed to be something that if you do it in one lab you and you publish it, you're supposed to publish the directions for how to do it, and that means somebody else should be able to pick it up and do the same thing. And in principle, this happens, and sometimes this works in science, but particularly in what's called preclinical biomedical research, which is research in basic biology that's hopefully leading to new drugs, 
and treatments, this was a, turned out to be a real problem. And pharmaceutical companies were discovering that when they went and picked up an exciting scientific paper and they tried to do the same experiments in their labs, they were not getting the same results. They could not replicate those results. And this was alarmingly common, like three quarters of the time this was the case or more. So I thought, hmm, I wonder if these two things are related. And so I started looking into this issue of reproducibility and not only just sort of what's going on, but ask, trying to understand what the underlying issues were, what the pressures were, why things were not working the way that we all want them to work. Gotcha. What caused Congress to double budgets, you know, in those years? That's that's interesting right there. It is. And it was through a couple of administrations. So it was not just simply a partisan issue. A couple of presidents thought this was a good idea. The short answer is everyone in Congress has a sick relative or cares about medical research. And so the NIH has always been a fairly nonpartisan issue. And it, the time was right. The economy was humming along pretty well at that time. And they were persuaded that this would be a good time to double the budget for the NIH uh, as a way of accelerating medical discoveries and curing the ailments that affected them and their families and friends and so on. So that's what happened. And then when the budgets got tighter again, they said, okay, well, we'll turn our attention somewhere else. So when did you know, I have a book here. Was there a, a moment like that? There kind of was when I realized, I started thinking about all the information I was gathering from all these sources. And I did a series of stories about this for NPR, but I realized there's so much left to say and I didn't see how it would exactly fit into a series of radio stories. And there were a lot of questions I had unanswered. I mean, I'd scratched the surface for my radio stories, but I realized if I could take a concentrated time, several months to a year, and really dig in, I can get some really interesting stories, and I can really understand this in greater depth. So that was the aha moment. I'd never written a book, and I thought, here's a topic I could dig my teeth into and be happy for a year thinking about one big question, and that's what I did. Since the book, have you continued in biomedical research or are you off to other things also? No, I'm still doing biomedical research and still dipping into these, these same topics as well. I did a story recently about the issues confronting publication in the scientific literature, which is the end of this process. Once you've made a discovery in your lab, you're supposed to go and get it published in the, in the literature so other people can understand what you've done and try to do it themselves. But this is a, a troubled industry in the sense that there are lots of issues with it. The motivations are kind of peculiar for exactly what gets published, how long it takes to get reviewed. There's a whole process called peer review where other scientists are supposed to review your work and catch your errors and so on, and, and that doesn't work so terribly well. So, so I spent, uh, so I, I did a story recently looking at, not only looking at sort of what's wrong with that system, but talking to people who have some ideas about how we can improve scientific publishing so it doesn't take nine months of a paper languishing and not seeing the light of day or longer, that it, things can get out more rapidly, scientists can have more feedback so that they can find their errors more readily and just make that whole process work more smoothly. Gotcha. In reading your book, I have to say it was shocking and almost unbelievable. I was like, as I went through it, I started to look for associates and acquaintances and also around UCI. It's like, are you aware of this? You know, it kind of depended on who I talked to. You know, if, if somebody was ensconced in the university, there was skepticism. But yet, if I started to talk to industry people, there would be like, yeah, I, you know, it's very much so. Can you address that? You know, as because when you look at the book, you're like, wow, is, is any good research being done? What would you say is it's a 50 
50-50 or, you know, can you look, address that? Oh, a lot of good research is being done. And the title may be a little bit uh, of giving people the sense that nothing is, is right. I actually wanted to call the book Science Friction because the message I want to get across is not that science has stopped. It clearly hasn't, but that there's something slowing it down. And some of this is unavoidable. Science is hard to do and you're going to make errors along the way. And we should not expect perfection out of scientists. That's just ridiculous. But the question is, are there preventable things? Are there problems that we can identify readily and fix readily? And that's what I focused on in the book. And there are still plenty of those issues that, you know, even if you get rid of them all, there will still be missteps and blind alleys and so on. But that's part of the process of exploring the unknown, right, which is what science is all about. But some of these problems are pretty deep in, in this area of, of biomedicine, which is called preclinical science, which is before these ideas actually make it to the clinics where they're tested in people, but these are ideas coming out of animal studies and so on. There's no good statistics on it, but there's sort of a lot of sort of independent lines of evidence suggesting that about half of what gets published is wrong. And there's no way somebody could have caught the errors in advance, but some of it is like, hey, if you had done your statistics better, if you designed the experiment better, if you'd been more careful about choosing the ingredients used for this experiment, you wouldn't have gotten in that condition. So that's part of it. But I also spend a lot of time looking at the incentives in science because this is driven by scientists don't want to get up and waste their time, right? They don't want to do bad science. The problem is that they are rewarded for doing flashy research that gets published in high-profile journals, and they get rewarded far less for taking that extra time and taking that extra care and spending that extra money that they may not have in their grant, because their grants basically are limited funds of money. And so a lot of those incentives are working against scientists doing the best thing. You you wake up in the morning and say, am I going to do something that's going to keep my lab going for another year, Uh, which might mean doing a, a more minimal experiment, or am I going to really hunker down and say, I don't care about money. I could not care about money. I'm going to do whatever. So there's a lot of exploring about the incentive as well. One of the major shocks I had was about the reproductibility of experiments and how the vast majority couldn't be reproduced. Are there any ingredients to change that around? Have suggestions been made to you? Sure. Oh, there are plenty of things you can do. I mean, some of those experiments failed because scientists, for example, had relied too heavily and believed too much in particular ingredients. And one example that's used very heavily in this area of research is called antibodies. These are proteins that sort of are homing, little homing devices that home in on specific proteins in the, in the cell, and they will tell you if it's there or not. It's supposedly a very sensitive method of, of detecting things in a cell, but people have too much faith in the antibodies. They look at all, what it says on the label, and they believe that these are sort of invincible ingredients, and they're not. And scientists can take more time to do cross-check experiments to see if their antibodies are behaving the way they think they're behaving. So that's one example. Another example is scientists need to spend a little bit more time thinking about how to design experiments because a lot of these, the problems arise because scientists use very few animals. They don't use enough animals to have a, a meaningful pool. And so you can get statistical aberrations that you think are a real result, or they don't think very carefully about the best way to select animals. So for example, if you have 10 animals, mice for example, if you're using, you wouldn't want to put five litter mites in one part of the experiment and five from another litter in another part, because then you don't know if the difference between those two experiments is just because they came from different litters. So you're supposed to do some basic things like mix up your litters when you do that, and people don't think about those kinds of, of basic things they could do. 
this really comes down to the fact that biology evolved in the last 20 or 30 years from a science that was very much more descriptive and not very quantitative. And scientists didn't really have to think that carefully about this. I talked to one scientist who said the mantra in biology was, if you have to do statistics to analyze your results, think of a better experiment. And the reality is, of course, today is very heavily dependent on statistics. And biology is just catching up to that right now. Uh, the training is not very deep in that area. And the mentors who are all grew up in this era of descriptive biology are supposedly teaching their graduate students and postdocs how to do this, but they may not have the skills themselves. So part of it comes down to improving the way that biomedical research is taught in universities. And that can make a big difference. And you know, the hardest part, though, is changing the incentive system where people are rewarded for doing the best work, not necessarily the flashiest work. That's a very difficult problem to solve because of what I was talking about at the very beginning of this conversation, which is that there's such a hyper-competitive rush to get the very limited research dollars that people can't afford to take chances. They have to get their grants in order to keep their labs going. And I can't blame them. I mean, that's an imperative. Got to keep your operation running. And it's tough. And it used to be when I, I actually went to the University of California when I was an undergraduate back in the 1970s. And most of the money for the University of California came from the state of California. It really was the University of California. Right. Nowadays, the university provides a, a tiny sliver of money for, for research. And so that's a, another driving factor here is that these, these labs are heavily dependent upon getting grants. And if they don't have a grant, to keep their labs going, they can go out of business. It used to be if they didn't get a grant, oh well, you can, they can keep doing, uh, you know, they can fall back onto their California salaries or whatever, but those days are gone. And so right. that's created a very unfortunate circumstance where scientists really have to keep their grants going at all costs. And that means that creates bad incentives in the whole system. Gotcha, gotcha. I noticed in your book, you talked about the Stanford metrics Mm -hmm. center. Can you talk about what they're doing and perhaps looking at some of these things you're talking about? Yeah, this is a this is founded by a couple of crackerjack physicians, both of them actually, who'd been looking at similar problems in the world of clinical research in human studies back in the 1990s when things were also, when some of these similar kinds of problems were plaguing that, that the, the, the world of clinical medicine. Uh, John Ioannidis and Steve Goodman spent actually a lot of their careers thinking about how to improve matters for in, in that area. And they made a lot of progress. And, and I actually find this a very hopeful story because things are much better in that realm thanks to the work of those guys and, and other people in, in that area. There was a sort of concerted effort, a recognition that this is a problem. People put their heads together and they dramatically improved the way clinical research was carried out. And now they've turned their attention to this preclinical area of research. And metrics is it's called meta-research because it's not they're researching research, how research is done. It's a sort of, you know, it's not like metaphysics, which is it's yeah. actually it's meta-research. So they have some money and some grants and, and ideas, projects to to really understand more deeply these problems that I have talked about in my book and to propose what can we do? How can we fix this? Gotcha. When I looked at some of the statistical analysis and it was talking about you want to have a 95% possibility of repeating the experiment and, and success. 
and only a 5% chance of it being wrong. Or am I getting that right? Or <laughs> Well, this is a, a, a complicated issue in biomedical research because, yes, you want to... A fundamental question is, when you get a result, was this just by chance? If I did the same experiment again, would I get the same result? And scientists have relied far too heavily on something called the p-value as a way of quantifying whether they believe the result or not. And a lot of scientists and mathematicians are completely have become completely disenchanted with this particular statistical test and think it's not a good test. It's widely misunderstood. In fact, it doesn't do what scientists think they, it does. Scientists think if I get a p-value of 0.05, that means there's only a 5% chance that it's wrong. And that that's actually a completely inappropriate way of interpreting those numbers. But a lot of people just embrace that as a truth. So one of the issues is how do you move the world of biology away from this standard that is a flawed standard and to get them to use some other way of determining whether, you know, how believable, how much faith they should put in the results that they have. And by having this sort of bright line, unfortunately, it, it leads itself to being gamed and many scientists end up just tweaking their data just enough to cross that line and so on. And that's, uh, you don't want people to play those games, but they feel they need to do that in order to have their results publishable. So that's one of the, the sort of methodological problems I talk about in the book. Uh, among others, yeah. You also talked about how important publishing, and it sounded like the big three journals that people want to get their research published in. It sounded like you thought that this was too powerful, that these, these publications are, are, are too emphasized. It is. Unfortunately, there's so much being published in the literature, and it's hard to get attention for any given paper. And one way scientists do that is they say, I'm going to get published in one of the top three journals, Science, Nature, and Cell. And if you're a postdoctoral researcher, you know that if you want to get a job after your postdoc, you basically have to have a smashing, amazing paper. And the way you can indicate that is by having it published in one of those top three journals. And if you don't get in one of those journals, your odds of getting a job are severely diminished. So that puts incredible pressure on scientists to publish in one of those top three journals. And it creates pressure for them to make their data look so sweet and so perfect and pretend that there are no warts, sort of, I mean, people literally doctor their images sometimes and so on. These are really problematic things. But unfortunately, what has come to happen is that there's so much scientific literature, people now use these journals as a, as a surrogate. Where you're published matters and what, much more than what you've published. And that's a mistake because they are not uniformly choosing the best and the brightest, the most brilliant papers every single time. They're publishing things that interest them. Their editors are human beings. They want papers that are going to get attention and so on. And, and that's what ends up in those journals. But the problem is this becomes this, unfortunately, a bad incentive for scientists not to say, well, wait a second, maybe I should just do one more experiment just to be doubly sure. And so on. it's like, if they have a hot result, they don't want to undercut it by discovering more. Mm. So fortunately, universities also then will look for tenure committees and so on. And promotion committees will say, well, how many papers have you published in Science, Nature, or Cell? And so that encourages this whole process to go forward. One of the major consequences of this is that if you do a piece of research and it turns out that you have a finding that is that calls into question what somebody else has done, it's that we've done the same experiment and we find that's not true or it's not the case, it's very hard to get published in those top journals because the journals care about papers that are going to get a lot of attention. And one of these studies that says 
thumbs down on somebody else's paper is critical information for the scientific literature, right. but they don't get a lot of citations because it's sort of a dead end, and so people stop building on it. And these journals care about how many citations their papers have. So unfortunately, uh, this is also has another very detrimental effect in the world of science, which is that stuff that we all should know about, that scientists should have out in the open about these what are called negative results, which are just as important as positive results in sort of essaying the whole body of work. Those 10 other uh, scientists don't try to get them published or they get published in places that aren't as well noticed and so on. And so that's actually a corrosive effect on the institution of science as well. There are journals are recognizing this. They are not science, nature, and cell, but other journals like the PLOS journals are saying, we recognize these are important papers. And if they are quality papers, we will publish them. So scientists still have this mindset that I'll never get it published and they don't try. But in fact, that is changing. And there are journals who are sending up the message, bring them to us, we'll publish them, we'll get them on the literature. And we don't care if we, you don't get a million citations from this paper. We recognize they're important. And it's part of our service as a journal to make that information widely available. Interesting. I saw in your book where you talked about how research will get a big splash and then Later on, it'll be proven not true, but that people c continue to rely on that false big splash research. That's a big problem. <laughs> yeah, depends how long that cycle lasts. And that's actually, that's another issue of, uh, that I explore as a way of fixing the system. And one is, is called, it's about transparency, which is if you make a big claim and you make your data readily available, then people can more quickly pick up your data, look at it, reanalyze it, and decide whether they believe it or not. And if there's a problem, that problem will come to light pretty quickly. So there's a big push. There's a lot of people who are now saying, this is an important thing to push for is to increase the transparency of the whole scientific process so that mistakes which or whatever that will inevitably creep in get caught sooner and people don't spend a lot of time building foundations on sand, right? There's a big push to do that and it's starting to happen throughout this area of science and in other areas of science. In fact, there's some parts of science where it's, where it's done pretty well. I have a story in the book about that, which was actually one of the major publicized conclusions when they first sequenced the human genome. It turns out that they made a mistake, but that all of that data was in the public. And uh, so very quickly, other scientists who didn't believe that conclusion were able to grab the data, reanalyze it. In a couple of months, they had a paper out saying, we've reanalyzed this data. They made a mistake. Here's what's really going on. And that was it. Understandable. We all make mistakes. And it's nice that it was cleaned up quickly and people didn't spend a lot of time trying to build on something that turned out not to be true. Interesting. Very interesting. How about on the other side, since you are reporting on biomedical research, anything that's exciting that you've like just heard about and you're like, are you kidding me? <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about anything off the top of your head? Yeah, one thing that interests me, and I'm cautious about knowing where the story is going to go, but about a year ago, a scientist published a paper saying that he had what appeared to be a very effective treatment for sepsis. Now, sepsis is not very well known as a disease, but it is a, basically, it is, when you get an infection, your body has a very severe overreaction to infection. And maybe a million Americans will come down with sepsis, will be diagnosed with sepsis every year, and maybe a quarter of them will die. Many, many more times more people die of sepsis than breast cancer. And so if somebody actually has a treatment for sepsis that works, that's just huge. I mean, that's that would make a huge difference for mortality in this country. And so... 
I'm very interested in, in watching as this claim starts to make its way through the world of biomedicine. The first thing that has to happen is there have to be other studies to try to confirm or find out whether he was right or not, controlled in different ways and so on, and, so, and those are starting to ramp up. But in the meantime, some scientists say, well, this doesn't seem to be a very harmful treatment, and I find his ideas so compelling that I'm going to start using it in my intensive care unit right now, and there are doctors who are doing that. They're working side by side with other doctors who are saying, oh, I'm not going to do anything until I see results from a randomized clinical trial with hundreds of patients or whatever. So it's just, for me, it's, it's an interesting window into the way that new ideas in medicine percolate and, and propagate and get tested out and where they end up. And I mean, there's, there's some chance that this will be a truly remarkable treatment. There's some chance that it worked brilliantly in this guy's hands in his hospital, in his setting, but it doesn't translate to other hospitals and other settings. But it's a, for me, it's a way to sort of lift the hood and see what's going on inside this interesting part of biomedicine. And so that's a story that I've been, do- I've been reporting about periodically. I just had a couple of stories about it a week or two ago, as a matter of fact. Excellent, which leads us into, we're running out of time here, how can we hear you? Where do we look for you or listen for you on the radio? My stories appear mostly on All Things Considered and Morning Edition, locally on KPCC and KCRW. And I also write versions for the web. So there's a, NPR has a health blog called Shots. So if you go to the NPR homepage and find the Shots blog, I'm certainly not the only reporter reporting about health and medicine for NPR. And we also bring in a lot of resources from reporters around the country. And so if you're interested in these topics, the Shots blog, is a good place to go as well if you want to read as opposed to listen. And you can also click on the Listen Now button if you want to catch up and and actually hear one of these reports. But those are my main venues. My stories appear on the weekend shows as well and the news, NPR news programming as well. Gotcha. Where are you stationed at? I'm in Washington, D.C. Okay. And do you travel much with your stories? I travel some, but the sort of the nature of biomedical research is it's sort of happening everywhere. There are occasions where you want to go to a specific lab to do a specific story, but a lot of the time, if I'm doing a story about diabetes, I can just as easily talk to somebody in Missouri as I can, somebody in Washington, D.C. or whatever. And so I don't travel as much as I used to when I covered the environment for NPR. Those stories literally took me around the world, all seven continents. And I covering the environment and climate change. Medicine, not so much, but uh, but I got out a little bit. Well, Richard, thank you very much for being with us. We really appreciate it, and we'll be listening and reading more about you on NPR. Well, thanks, Kevin. Nice to talk to you. Thank you again to award-winning journalist and NPR correspondent Richard Harris for sharing his book, Rigor Mortis, with us. Hopefully, the National Institutes of Health are listening. And don't forget, Richard Harris can be heard frequently on local radio stations KPCC and KCRW's editions of All Things Considered and Morning Edition. And as always, a shout-out goes to Fred Kaplan, piano man extraordinaire, for all my show theme music from his super CD, Signifying. I like it. And coming up next on KUCI is Entrepreneur Nation with Ash Kumra the show that always has interesting guests discussing solutions to frequent business problems. Stay tuned. You are listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, the UCI Conversation Show, where every week we explore another corner of the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and zot, 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 everyday anteaters. Don't forget, you can always reach me at kboss at KUCI.org. And all my shows are available on my podcast website at www.bossenmeyer.com. 
I'm your host, Kevin Bostonmeyer, encouraging you to stay vigilant. Hopefully, we are on the last lap of the pandemic. Keep socially distancing and wearing double masks. We are all in this together, and we will get through this. Keep working hard, and be kind to yourself and others. Have a pleasant good evening. Happy trails. We will see you next week. So long, everybody.